Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. And welcome everybody back in. We are in part two of our conversation with our friend, David Crump, uh, retired professor slash pastor. Do you still pastor, David? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I would be interested to be more involved in that. Okay. I have not had the opportunity. And honestly, there are some things I miss about pastoring very much, but there are other things that I yeah. don't miss at all. It is, so. it is a tough, we know exactly what yeah. you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm hey, sure Rob, you do. Rob, give a quick bio again on David for our friends who might be jumping in for the first time. And if you are jumping in for the first time, we would highly recommend go back. Yeah. Uh, definitely listen to the, the last episode with David, as well as uh, Rob and my discussion uh, setting up the topic of uh, uh, Christian nationalism and nationalism. But Rob, go, go ahead and give a quick bio for Yeah, you. David, thanks again for being with us. David Crump is a retired professor of New Testament at Calvin College and a former pastor with more than 30 years of combined experience in the pulpit and the classroom. His books include Encountering Jesus, Encountering Scripture, Reading the Bible Critically in Faith, Knocking on Heaven's Door, on New Testament Theology of Petitionary Prayer, Like Birds in a Cage, Christian Zionism's Collaboration and the Oppression of the Palestinians. And then the book that we've been discussing here for the last two episodes, last episode plus this one is, I Pledge Allegiance, A Believer's Guide to Kingdom Citizenship in the 21st Century America. So David, thanks again for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me back, guys. It's always a fun time to be with you. Great. And we, I mentioned at the end of this uh, the, of our last episode that I think this is one of the most significant conversations we can possibly have for Christians in the United States and Christians in the, in the West today. What we discussed last time a little bit was the fact that we kind of have two aspects of this. What is nationalism and then the Christian's involvement in this nationalistic and, and an empire? And then the second direction is, well, what about the church and how what it means to live a kingdom life. And that's what I, I really love about your book is you, you're not bashing nationalism, as, as Vinny said, as much as you're saying, hey, this is what it looks like, but here's the alternative. This is what the kingdom and kingdom people should be doing and should be focusing on. But before we kind of go on that second strain, what we really want to really talk about, what is the gospel and the kingdom and how does it affect these things? We left one conversation out, and that was the nationalism and the racist heritage of nationalism. So if you'll speak to us a little bit about nationalism and, and race for a few minutes, please. Yes, yes. It's a very, very important subject. And I know others are, are much more qualified than I am to talk about it. But since I happen to be the guy in the hot seat today, I, I would <laughs> like to address it with you uh, as best I'm able anyway. Uh, unfortunately, this is another part of the dark underbelly of Christian history, of the history of the Christian church. Uh, that we have been accomplices to racism and the promotion of racism throughout the history of the West. And it's something that needs to be recognized and addressed and redressed by God's people today. And let me come at this from two angles. Let's first of all go back to the kingdom of God dimension of this. As citizens of the kingdom of God, of course, it's almost a nicety, you know, for Christians to acknowledge uh, almost trivially that the kingdom of God is multiracial and multi-ethnic. It includes everybody uh, of all nationalities, of all ethnicities. And genders. and Yes, yes. and genders, exactly. Thanks for adding that as well. Very, very important. But we have to then ask, what does that mean for us then in practice? 
particularly when we live in a society where that kind of equity is not lived out. It's not experienced by everyone of different ethnicities and nationalities within our culture and society. Uh, I would argue that as kingdom citizens, Christians ought to be on the forefront of seeing that all people are not only treated in the same way, but all people are given the same kinds of advantages and opportunities, that all people are able to stand on the same playing field with the same resources, the same opportunities, and the same possibilities envisioned for them, no matter who they happen to be or where they come from. And that just simply is not the case. And the fact that it is primarily white people, Caucasian people, who are standing up in the church and arguing about this is itself its own demonstration of the problem. Right. It's very telling that when the Southern Baptist Convention got together and decided that they would banish critical race theory from all of their educational institutions, at least officially, that the only people who sat on that committee were white men. Hmm. That tells the tale right there. So it's not at all accidental that right now it's primarily members of the evangelical church, conservatives, who are standing up and condemning things like critical race theory in school board meetings today. Hmm. It's because we do not really take membership in the kingdom of God seriously. And part of what aggregates this problem, in fact, maybe the main aggravating issue is its long history within our culture as we descend from Western imperialism. And I've come to the conclusion that that really is the root for this in our society. We stand in the tradition of white Western imperialism, where it was the white man's burden to educate, civilize, to elevate dark-skinned people around the world, and the church and church authorities and representatives were at the pointy end of the spear in pursuing that ideology throughout the world. Now, I am not here to condemn all missionary work. Far Mm -hmm. from it. Far from it. You know, I would urge everyone to read an African theologian. He's deceased now, but uh, Laman Salah wrote wonderful works about the importance of Christian missionaries in the prosperity of Africa. Mm -hmm. But that is far from the only side to that story. And Christianity has been an enabler of racism and colonialism and discrimination throughout Western history. And that continues today. We see that seed in our culture, in our soil, when these People stand up at school board meetings condemning critical race theory uh, and denying its existence, denying the economic and cultural inequities that are built into the systems of our society. And Christians have got to wake up and acknowledge that and stop being a retrograde force, but be a kingdom force for God's grace in all people's lives. Let's address this a little bit right now since you've brought it up so eloquently as well. I think a lot of people are going to go, wait a minute, they're advocating for critical race theory. Okay, wait a second. So let's just address this a little bit. The the accusation that evangelicals are going to label against critical race theory is it's a secular theory that denies sin, 
and the original and, and the role of sin and, and these things. So speak a little bit for the, I know this is a little bit off topic a little bit, but we've, we've brought it in the conversation. So we might as well go ahead and address it here. Cause what happens, of course, we all know is that when you bring up something that people don't like, they just tune you out. So if they haven't yes, tuned this yes. out already, we need to go ahead and make sure they stay with us for another 30 minutes. But that's, <laughs> can you address that a little bit uh, for us? Sure. Sure. Well, let me mention that I've recently written an article about this. Okay. It's kind of revolves around a book review of a book by a man named Fadi Bakum. Mm. Fault lines. Fault, fault lines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fault lines. Yes. I wrote a review that turned into an article that was then published by Comet Magazine, part of the Cardis Group. I think it ended up being titled uh, "Among the Tailings of Western Imperialism and Southern Segregation" or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and unfortunately, most people who criticize critical race theory just don't understand it. And mm -hmm. neither, neither does the author of that book. Uh, and none of the criticisms really address it. Critical race theory simply recognizes that the society in which we live was, was built by white men. And it was built in such a way as to give the greater advantage to white people, which means that people of color are disadvantaged by the system. Mm -hmm. It does not propose that every individual white person is by definition a racist. Now, I realize that there are some people who would say that. Mm -hmm. I would argue that they are misusing and misrepresenting critical race theory when they try to make that a conclusion of critical race theory. <clears throat> but for a white person to deny it is simply a sign of, of not being informed. Uh, there's a, a, a terribly depressing and overwhelming but terribly important book written by a law professor called The Color of Law. Yes. And yes. I would encourage everyone to look at that book yes i would it's, agree it's just overwhelming with empirical evidence yep. to prove this point so again christians should be on the parapets of, right. of trying to undo this this system of oppression yeah let me comment david too that i think some people have have been taught in the white Western evangelical church. Okay. Critical race theory. That's bad. It's anathema. I've got to, I've got to reject that. Let's just stop and say, let's throw that label out or the title out. The point at hand is mm -hmm. has America as a system, as a country been established in such a way that it's disadvantaged people of color from the beginning. Uh, and the, the effects of that are still rampant within our society. And I've been blogging yes. on this for several months now. So if you go to my blog on Patheos, the determined truth blog, uh, and read about that. And then The Color of Law is a phenomenal book that does yes. a really good job of saying, hey, this is what redlining in American history with redlining yes. and housing and uh, and the school systems and, and things of that nature. So, so throw right. that label out. If you don't like critical race there, just sure. throw that out for a little bit sure. and evaluate the fact and the exactly. issues that we're talking about there. So, right. Yeah. And, and be educated, be informed. Um, ignorance does not glorify God. Right. Okay. Right. Piety, if it's ignorant, is of little use because it's misguided and it's misdirected. It's funny from a theological standpoint in the critique on critical race theory and, and that concept. But let's be honest, 
critical race theory itself is something that is taught like at a graduate level. <laughs> right. It, it, this isn't something that is like no. uh, taught in elementary schools. If, no. if you're no. learning critical race theory in the schools, <laughs> if your kids are learning it, congratulations, they're probably working on their, their law degree yeah. or something. Right? A little Einstein. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even from like, as someone who is a reformed Baptist in my, in my theology, and so I'm speaking. Does that mean to, you've repudiated being a Baptist? As yeah, a Baptist? yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, okay. but but <laughs> so as someone who would technically be on the same side of the equation as a Bodie Bauckham, who would also identify himself as a Reformed Baptist. Yes. What I don't understand is if we are people who would affirm something like the total depravity of human people. Exactly. Right. Exactly. The anthropology exactly. of someone. Yeah. How, exactly. Why would we then say, like, why would we? Why would it be an issue at all that we would exactly. say? And as human yes. beings, we would yes. want to do something like, yes. <laughs> you know, take advantage of a people group. How is that beyond what we would want to do? Of course, right, exactly. that's what we would want to do. Exactly. Exactly. And this is one of the things that I just marvel at whenever I read a book like Bauckham's book or hear any of these other popular criticisms being sped out by people whose names I forget. Um, this is the crippling sin of evangelical individualism. Mm -hmm. You know, in many ways, Individualism can be a good thing as long as it's kept within perspective. But this inability or unwillingness or intellectual blindness to the power of collective sin, mm -hmm. of corporate sin, right. exactly. is really astounding. Mm -hmm. when, when gatherings of sinful individuals come together and try to build a society, they will construct a broken, warped society. <laughs> it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. It's not rocket science. So when people come forward and say, look, yes, individuals may have a problem with being racist. That is a matter for individual confession and repentance and work at reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But that is only the tip of the problem. Mm -hmm. There is beyond that a systemic problem that has been constructed for generations by sinful people like me and you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we are obligated to deconstruct the ramifications of our historic sin. And that's all it's saying. Carl Truman, who's a, a British historian, he's written on this uh, and, and he calls it expressive individualism. So this mm. is something that as my church, we've been talking a lot. We spent a lot of time over the summer discussing what this is and oh. how it just plagues American society oh, specifically. Great. Can I and join so, your church? Yeah, right. Uh, so uh, well, we there are other, other problems that you might not want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but so this actually is funny because it, it, it's funny how it creeps up just in, in normal things. So this, this past Sunday, I'm teaching a Sunday school class through the book of Daniel. We finish up Daniel chapter six and what happens at the end of Daniel six after that Daniel is, is rescued, you know, he, he is found to be innocent in the lion's den. And so what does Darius do to the, the, all the leaders who were falsely accusing, who are being malicious against him? He sends them into the lion's den, but it's not just them. Who does he send with them? Mm. Their, their wives and kids. Mm -hmm, and, and this mm -hmm. becomes the uproar because mm -hmm. the first thing that the people in my Sunday mm -hmm. school class are thinking is, well, that's not fair. The wife and kids didn't do it. <laughs> okay. And so immediately even there, bringing it back to why are we thinking in those kind of terms? See how right. expressive individualism right. has even affected how we read every aspect of the biblical story because right. nothing is corporate. It's just individual autonomy right. and responsibility. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. And we're blind to it. We don't no. recognize it. Absolutely. It, it, the way the way our senior pastor says, it, it's like explaining water to fish. <laughs> you exactly. Know? It's just this That's is a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. To segue now, as we get into specifically talking about uh, issues of the kingdom and maybe integration of churches, we could even go back to talks of revelation, which, mm-hmm. which Rob obviously is, is your uh, emphasis. Yeah, and love so that. much of that has to do with the integration of uh, nationalism and Christian nationalism in a sense. That's probably maybe the first example of it, right? Sure. One of the quotes in your book, you say, what the world needs more than anything else is not a superior social ethic, but the kingdom of God. Yes. Uh, expand on that and just because this captures so much of what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's not about saying critical race theory is the the solution. That, no. In a sense, no. that's still a a secular construct, right? right? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> how how would you define the difference between social ethics, which you critique in a sense? Uh, it's not just the the lib, the social liberals that are getting it right. It just but, right. but there's something else there. It's the, it's the kingdom of God that needs to be preached. Yes. Exactly. I'm glad you asked that question. Well, first of all, let me acknowledge my spiritual forefathers here. I I have to say that I have learned a tremendous amount from Stanley Hauerwas about this part of uh, theology, Christian theology, and the intersection of Christian theology with American culture and society and political involvement. To my mind, he's the most important living American theologian right Mm. now, so I highly recommend him. And you quote him uh, extensively in your uh, in Pledge of Allegiance. Or Pledge yes, of Allegiance. yes. I give him credit where credit is due. I wouldn't be able to think the way I, I do today <laughs> if that's a good thing uh, were it not for the writings of Stanley Hauerwas. So we are called to be the people of God. That's our number one priority. Now, in the process of living out that calling, there will inevitably be some derivatory, derivatory, derivatory benefits to others around us, whether they're in the kingdom of God or not. But that's not our primary goal. We're not called to give the people of the world a better economic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. We're called to be Jesus's followers here and now which, you know, this could lead us into a whole discussion of Jesus's ethic and what that kingdom ethic is about. But to just do a shorthand version, that's our responsibility. And that's hard enough as it is. It's impossible for any of us to really do consistently and effectively to live that upside down kingdom lifestyle where the first shall be last and the last will be first, where rich men will find it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than they will for themselves to get into the kingdom of God. Where wealth has that kind of deleterious power to inhibit our spiritual life. That's Mm -hmm. hard to live out, honestly. Where we are supposed to share indiscriminately and generously so much so that we can't even keep track of it. Our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. Mm. Where we are willing to always take the lowest seat at the table, to wash people's feet, even if they are the most unclean, Mm -hmm. the most needy, Mm -hmm. the most unwashed, Mm. to be the hands of Jesus, 
and serving those people in those circumstances. That's what we are called to do and to be. To disavow claims to power. But to take on the role of a servant. As Jesus said, he did not come to be served, but to serve. Mm -hmm. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our calling. Mm -hmm. When we live that out, we are being citizens of the kingdom of God. That's our number one goal, to glorify Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life on the cross so that we could have a father in heaven. Mm. Now, in the process of doing that, will good things happen for society? You bet. Will we have valuable contributions to make at the political roundtable? Maybe, if anyone will listen to us. Mm-hmm. But whether we are listened to and whether we have that broader influence or not is not really our great concern. Our great concern is to ask ourselves, in a world where we probably will not be listened to, what is the best I can do with what I've got to bring glory to my crucified and resurrected Savior? That's a kingdom lifestyle. And that's my answer to people on the right and the left, conservatives yeah. and liberals and everyone in between. Yeah. And this doesn't happen very often, but uh, I'm speechless. That, that's, yeah, it's, that's just, just keep playing that over and over again. If you're listening to the podcast, go back and rewind and play again. You just mentioned two things, and, and this actually becomes somewhat of a theme throughout the book, but the kingdom of God is here, and this mm-hmm. is what the church is able to shine to the nations, yet we shine because there's this other kingdom that exists. Uh, There's this other thing that is happening. And the reason why we do need to feed people and clothe people and take care of those people is because there's this other kingdom. Uh, You use the theological concept of the already, but not yet, uh, which I, which I'm assuming is tied to this. And I know when I grew up, in the church, we didn't really focus on this because the kingdom of God has not arrived in in that right. particular theological construct, especially right. in a in a dispensational construct. You're really waiting for this to happen. This is a future right. thing, and so you don't use terminology like already, but not yet. So I'm wondering for folks who are listening now, who they might go and read the, your book, they're going to see this phrase and they don't know what to do with this. Can you just lay out sure. what what you're referring to in that? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. That's a very important question. And again, let's point to the evangelical heritage here. The first really recognized evangelical scholar that I'm aware of in America who who really fleshed that out in a way for evangelical readers to grasp was the New Testament scholar taught at Fuller for years, George Eldon Ladd. Mm. So I'd send people to go read Ladd. Mm. He does Mm. a good job of talking about this. And again, it starts by paying attention to Jesus. The number one topic of Jesus' concern in the Synoptic Gospels is the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. He talks about it all the time Mm -hmm. and explains it in every which way, which suggests that it wasn't self-evident to people what he was trying to say, because he had to explain it so many times. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's very interesting that comes through in his teaching is an ambiguity as to whether or not the kingdom is here or if it's coming. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Jesus says that the kingdom has arrived with him and it is here. 
Other times he says that, no, it's not here yet. It's approaching. It's on its way. And a lot of people have wrestled with what's going on here. Uh, I'm convinced, I'm with a school of thought that believes that Jesus was very intentional about this. And he wants us to think about the kingdom in this dual fashion. In certain respects, the kingdom has not yet arrived. It's on its way. In fact, Jesus would say it's even close. But in other respects, it's already here. It is established and is a growing concern. Now, what does that mean then in lived human experience for the disciple? Well, as I work that out in the book, and I won't go into all the details here, I think what Jesus tells us is that right here, right now, because the kingdom is here, followers of Jesus are supposed to live an impossibly ridiculous, upside-down, mm -hmm. idealistic life mm -hmm. that just doesn't work in this world. <laughs> it's for another world. It's for another place, like heaven. Mm -hmm. But it's supposed to be actualized right here and now in the church. And so when people ask, where's the proof that Jesus is the Messiah? Where's the proof that the kingdom of God has really come? Jesus would say, we're supposed to be able to point to the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And say, look at those crazy people. <laughs> and the just bizarre, servant-oriented, self-sacrificial manner of life filled with love and devotion for each other. There's the proof that the kingdom is here. Mm. Now, we wait for Jesus to return. It will only be fully established, and those two dimensions of already but not yet will only be unified when Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, the church is the promise that that return is inevitable, mm. no matter how much longer we have to wait. You say on page 248, you say the church suffers from a massive delusion when its members think that they are justified in refusing to, to do business with sinners outside of the community. Mm -hmm. Are we to assume that Paul, the tent maker, never sold a tent to local shop shoppers in the marketplace because they, like everyone else in the ancient world, prayed to their household ancestors deities before before family meals? So that that church is living out the kingdom at the same time within a culture, within a society, within, whether it's America or, or India or wherever else it might be. So talk then about how, how do we relate to that culture then? Mm. Good question. Well, I think it's difficult for anybody who's not in the culture and part of the culture. You have to know your culture and mm. understand mm. it. You have to understand the implications of things, of you know how your behavior is going to be read and, and understood and presumed. But at the same time, that then has to be balanced by this understanding that as a Christian, you're not a part of this world. And those things don't have those meanings and implications for you. So, for example, you know, let's take Paul's discussion in Corinthians. People ask him whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Mm -hmm. Because the local temple was the meat market. There weren't butchers who just butchered animals. 
there were priests who made sacrifices, and then they sold the slaughtered animals out the back of the temple. So some of these people being converts to Christ from these pagan backgrounds were leery about eating that meat because they knew from their background that meant they were participating in some kind of sacrifice or festival to a false god, and their conscience would not allow them to do that. And Paul's answer is quite sensitive. He says to people, if that bothers your conscience, then you can't do it because to violate your conscience is sin. He then also goes on to say, however, that is a weaker conscience. That's the weaker position. People who aren't bothered by that have the stronger conscience because we know those gods don't exist. We know that's all mythology. We know it's not real. However, for the sake of not causing, causing distress or even apostasy to others, those of you who are strong, don't do it if you know it's going to be a problem for those who are weak. That kind of analysis of, on the one hand, we disengage. We know that these false gods are myths. They're not real. They don't have that power. But on the other hand, I know that my actions can have an effect upon my brothers and sisters in my life. That needs to be negotiated in very loving and sensitive, intelligent ways by people who actually know the dynamics of the culture. I don't know if I'm getting at your question there. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, very good. I had a couple come to me and said, well, our niece that we've been very close to for many years uh, has become uh, lesbian and mm. she's getting married. And should we go to the wedding? Mm. Uh, so I know I'm asking you on the yeah. spot here, uh, something, a question like, what, what do you think about a question like that? And, and sure. how would you have responded to, to see sure. if I said the right thing or not? <laughs> no. Oh, that's an excellent question. And, and very, very germane, isn't it? Yeah. Very germane. You know, I think I would, I would do a couple things. First of all, I think I'd say this, this may be an issue where equally sincere believers can have a difference of opinion. Sure. And, and some, some disciples could genuinely say, I'm sorry, I love you, but I just can't participate in this. This, of course, requires a very careful personal conversation. You, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't do this from a distance or with a Hallmark greeting card. You know, you sit down with a person and you actually talk to them and explain what your issues are lovingly. On the other hand, there might be other equally sincere Christian people who also understand the sin of homosexual marriage and sexual relationship, who nevertheless can say, I think it's important to be there to love and support this person for whatever it is that comes down the road. And perhaps also with a personal conversation that says, you know, I cannot endorse the marriage, but I endorse you as my Exactly, niece. exactly. And I'm here because I love you. Exactly. I want to be in your life in the future. And this, I told him the right answer then. Yeah. Okay, well, it, it, this is something that it becomes, you know, very, uh, especially in a very conservative church that I'm in, you know, this becomes a, a topic now. What do you do? What's mm -hmm. the ethical ramification? Yeah. And unfortunately, there's been this monolithic idea, like there is a right and wrong answer. Right. And the right. only right answer is you, you cannot go to it because you cannot endorse sin. Right. Like you said, there's a good conviction there. The person I think wants to do the right thing, but it's difficult to have these conversations because usually the person also says, but I'll still be there for that person. I'll still love them. I still want to be in their life. And my question right. to them is, 
this is the most important day of this exactly. person's life. Right, if you right. say, I won't be there for you. And it, you know, you could rightfully say, I disagree with this. Right. But if you're saying, I won't participate in this voice, are you going to have in their life after this? Right. Like you're, you're kind right. of, they're not going to want to have anything to do with you after this. Right. And so are there other, other areas where you could say, I can attend this in some regards and still not promote it. Whether that means right. I won't go to the ceremony, but I will go to the reception. Yeah, uh, or, yeah, or or yeah. you know where wherever you might be on that spectrum mm-hmm. for your conscience mm-hmm. and how you actually work through it, but to limit it and be so unnuanced to say that this is a yes. binary, there's a right and a wrong. Right. I, I think there's more options than that. And and my, yes. you know, the thing that I really draw on is every time you see Jesus sitting and eating with sinners and tax collectors, right. not just a meal, he's publicly affirming the person. And yes, he's exactly. you know, th- there's something there exactly. changing the person. But he, there's something that's happening where he's associating with them in that sort of way, it, and and we we need we need to glean from that in a, in a stronger way. Yeah, if I can add, Vinny, you can't say to that person, "I'm going to be there for you whenever you need me," but I'm not going to attend your wedding because now the answer right. is, when I have a need, let's say two years from now, and I have a problem in this marriage that you don't sanction because you wouldn't even go to the wedding, I know I can't come to you about it. Yes. Because right. you've already told me that you don't agree with, and you're just going to tell me I told right. you so, yep. or you're going to be unsympathetic. It's like, no, that to be there for them means I'm there for you. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, by the way, you we go to weddings all the time between heterosexuals <laughs> yes. who are not sexually right. exactly. acting appropriately. Yeah, correct. Right. So exactly. you're sanctioning things all the time. So right. I think that's hypocrisy. This might be a good time to, to switch into maybe uh, maybe the final thing to talk about and really coming back to Christian nationalism, but the integration of this in the the local church, we'll call that, because uh, this is what happens all the time. But, you know, Rob, your your emphasis on the book of Revelation, you when you teach it, and I've heard it taught for years, really uh, bringing to light this concept of the imperial cult and bringing in the, the false mm-hmm. worship of the world and how the book of Revelation is a worship book in a sense. And it's showing mm-hmm. what is good worship and what is false or true worship and what is false worship. Mm-hmm. I know in David De Silva's little book, Holy Allegiance, he talks mm-hmm. a lot about this sort of thing mm-hmm. in the imperial cult and all the the, the worship things yes. that are happening there. Yes. Uh, David, I'd love to know your thoughts on the integration of Christian symbols and even, you know, national, so national symbols in the local church. Uh, so let, let's talk about one of them. Like, what do we do? You know, what is the appropriate position to take on a thing like a veterans day? Should yes. we honor our veterans and ask them to stand up? Uh, you know, just starting there, we've already, I forget if it was this episode or last episode where we right. talked about saying, no, we, we need to take these people seriously and we need to love them in terms of mm-hmm. supporting veterans, especially in terms of long-term care and these sorts of things. So this is not an anti-veteran thing. It's just mm-hmm. what is appropriate for the gathering of the people of God on the Lord's yes. day. Yes. Yes. Excellent question. Well, as you guys understand, symbols, symbols are powerful. Uh, they're very important, and they carry great meaning for people, whether we acknowledge it or recognize it or not. Uh, so how we present symbols in the context of Christian worship is, is really crucial. So personally, I, for one, I would never allow a nationalist or even an organizational flag mm-hmm. inside the sanctuary where I was serving as a leader. It just ain't going to happen, or, or I'm not going to talk there, unless I'm invited outside from the outside, and then I'll criticize it once I get there. <laughs> when it comes to acknowledging veterans, that is such an important question, because 
as we touched on in our previous conversation, so oftentimes acknowledging veterans in our society is so superficial mm. and they're really neglected once they get home. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you know that the rates of suicide yep. among our veterans is just more people die at home of self-inflicted wounds than die on the battlefield. Yep. Oftentimes it's, it's just horrible. It's really tragic. Yeah, and we don't provide them the financing or the funding or the medical or the psychiatric help or anything. It's, mm -hmm. it's a travesty. I think it all depends on how the leadership sets it up. Mm. I would not at all be in favor of it if it simply stand and let's applaud our veterans who have served their country in the military. That's all wrong. However, if you could have the involvement of some veterans who would do it with you, and if they perhaps could have somebody start out by sharing their own personal story and testimony of living with PTSD, mm. of how they're still wrestling with moral injury mm. and the ruined conscience that their military activities has left them burdened with if they tell some stories if they're able to this would be a hard thing to ask anyone to do but you know close buddies who died mm. next to them if it would present people with the reality of what military service means in the real world and then puts that within the framework of how antithetical all of that is to the kingdom of God and the Christian life, but nevertheless calls forth from God's people important reserves of care, love, and compassion for the men and women in our midst who are suffering because of, I say, because of the response that they gave to the military recruiters or to the other opportunists who enlisted them in that cause. Ideally, frankly, if there were a veteran in my conversation who could close it all off by really highlighting this contradiction and maybe even sharing his regrets or her regrets and warning other young people in the church, do not do what I did. Do not follow this path. I think that would be the perfect ending to it. But that I, that's how I would want to approach it, I think. You're emphatic in your in your book about military service and the, and the chapter that uh, you, you talk about mm -hmm. there, and you're so transparent about your own struggles with your own dad. I mean, it was we were talking before the show just how that spoke to me on a number of levels. But do you see this as a conscious issue uh, that the Christian struggles with uh, or do you see that in, in meaning like even military involvement, or do you see this as a straight line issue saying, no, I don't think a, there's a straight line between the Bible and the Christian disciple that says, no, we just cannot have a part of this. Well, personally, I think there's a straight line from the new Testament mm -hmm. to the follower of Jesus who says, I can't have any part of this. Mm -hmm. Now I will add that I have had very dear friends, and I, I talk about one of them in the book, one who went into chaplaincy and, and others who, who go in as medics, who, who see themselves as being there to serve veterans. Right. 
I waffle on that. I have problems with that. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. I know that these friends of mine, once deceased now, love Jesus as much as anybody you'd want to meet and would swear to you that they were following God's call in their life to become a chaplain or a medic. I will not vouchsafe that. Okay. I, I, I can't contradict that. But I will say if anybody came and asked for my advice, that's not the advice I would give to them because personally, I'm just so persuaded there's a clear line from one to the other. Wow. Well, this has uh, been fantastic, uh, David, and I thank you so much. And I, again, I just can't endorse enough the book, I Pledge Allegiance. What you do in there, again, is, is not only talk about nationalism and, and exceptionalism and the problems inherent in it, but you really help take the reader and take us to what the kingdom looks like and what the kingdom ethic looks like. And that's what we really need. It's amazing. You mentioned before that the kingdom of God is Jesus' number one topic. It's the most commonly spoken about topic, yet I think most Christians have very little understanding of what the kingdom of God's even about and what it means to be kingdom people. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for your contributions and I thank you for this conversation as well. And I hope uh, our listeners have been edified by this as much as we have and challenged by it just so much. Yeah, anything that you want to add uh, before we before we sign off? Well, let me just say again, what an honor it is for me to be here with you two gentlemen again. And I just have such deep admiration for both of you and what you're doing. And may God bless you both in all of your endeavors. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. I'm sure this won't be our last conversation. So yeah. Yeah, I hope not. Yeah, me too. Hey, well, thanks everyone for uh, hanging out with us today. And uh, if you have not already, check out one of David's books. He's written a number of great books, uh, Pledge of Allegiance, aforementioned book he did on Christian Zionism that we interviewed him on a few months ago. He has a great book on prayer. Uh, so you definitely look him up on Amazon. You can look at his uh, blog and we will uh, link to a lot of these in the show notes so you can check those things out. But we will see everyone soon. Hope you've been enjoying this series. And uh, make sure to like and subscribe so you get notifications on when new episodes will we be released. But we'll see everyone uh, soon in the next episode. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.